coming up on Pass the Secret Sauce. From a very different lens, and we recommend that anybody, whether you're doing real estate investing or any type of business, you work really hard up front to figure out a package, if you will, or a system that works. You, you spend so, so, so much time perfecting it up front. So in our case, for example, that was putting together a package of materials. And Jay had mentioned earlier, for example, how there would be schedules posted up on the walls so that all the contractors knew when things were to get done. Welcome to the show, I'm Matt Shields. On Pass the Secret Sauce, we unscramble the life stories, skills, and secrets from the most wicked smart minds and interesting people to uncover their experience and recipes for success that will help you get an edge on your own life. My goal is to help you rein in on the chaos that life throws at us by learning from other high achievers. If you're new to the show, we have episodes with founders, CEOs, investors, and leaders. So if you like to learn and are motivated to improve your life, then kick back and listen to our guests pass their secret sauce. Today on Pass the Secret Sauce, we have a special double treat. Normally we don't have two people that we interview at the same time, but we today we interview Jay Scott and Carol Scott, a a husband and wife team that invest in real estate across the country. So a little bit about Jay and Carol. Jay Scott is actually the co-host of the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. So a lot of people obviously have heard of Bigger Pockets, and it's one of the, I guess, the the main starting points that a lot of people use to start learning about how to invest in real estate. They've got a hell of a lot of information that they publish uh, all the time, all based around real estate and really is kind of a go-to resource for uh, your your beginning and actually, I guess, uh, advanced investing uh, professionals. They have rehabbed, sold, lent on, and held over $70 million in property all around the country. So we're not dealing with people that have not been there, done that. So we get into a lot of the ways that they work together and how they tackle, how they identify different opportunities in markets and how they evaluate different markets before they even start looking at properties in those areas. So it's a great info-packed episode here today with Jay Scott and Carol Scott uh, on how to evaluate real estate and where to invest and where not to invest. So I hope you enjoy today's episode of Pass the Secret Sauce. Dinner was absolutely scheduled. I can't remember the time by any stretch of the imagination, but we definitely sat down to dinner every single night as a family. And there were four of us. There were four, well, four kids and two adults, a very, very, very strict dad who actually, thank goodness, taught us some phenomenal table manners, which I'm uh, <laughs> very strict with my kids about. So I love that he passed that down. And frankly, it was a lot of people with a lot of opinions, all passing around lots of information and being loud and talking about our days and what we thought about everything without chewing with our mouths open because that was absolutely the number one sin that could have possibly been committed. But we did all sit down as a family and talk about our day and what was going on. I love it. I love it. And did you have entrepreneurial tendencies growing up? Were you were you doing Zero. any 
no, no, no. Oh, I apologize. Uh, let me back up. Myself, oh gosh, yes. Uh, uh, let me back up even further by saying, grew up with a whole lot of nothing. Just throw it all out there. Grew up with absolutely nothing. My uh, my mom had me just right out of high school. My dad had just come out of Vietnam. They struggled and oh, wow. struggled. Not only was there a little bit, of, only little money. There was there was no money. And the, and then you know you take that back like layers and layers. There was no money whatsoever to the point where we as kids were pretty much fending for ourselves. I remember my mom literally when I was nine saying, "Hey, you're nine. Figure out a way to make money if you want." some nice shampoo at age nine right and it just it is what it is and at that point we just didn't think anything didn't think anything strange about it because it's just how we grew up so from the time I was little oh my gosh I was always coming up with little random things to generate income whether it be face painting or doing calligraphy on sports certificates or whatever like babysitting like crazy whatever random thing I could possibly be doing to at some point you know be able to fend for myself and make some money that's great. That is great. So, so the the calligraphy. Are you still doing calligraphy t- today? I mean, that's a that's a cool, unique skill that not many people have. Thank you for asking. So funny. So I I do calligraphy, but not necessarily as a business by any stretch. Yeah. Uh, just it's just one of those fun little things that in addition to calligraphy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, I talk about a lot when I do talks about my book and everything. I talk about the power of putting actual physical pen to physical paper mm-hmm. other than other than really addressing everything through technology or online. And it not only is a stress relief, there is there is scientific research that shows you're more committed to different ideas and that type of thing once you physically touch pen to paper. So I've always been really kind of obsessed in a addicted to just full on writing. And so I have all different types of handwriting, all different forms. So it hasn't necessarily manifested itself as an entrepreneurial adventure in and of itself, but it always is just kind of sitting back there the importance of pen to paper. No, that's cool. And I I say that because I I love when some people I've seen, my girlfriend is one of these types of people, they'll just sit there and they'll, you know, draw these beautiful shapes and words and everything just kind of flows together. And I'm always kind of envious of that because I don't have any of those types of skills at all. So, um, so that's great that you, that you, uh, that you still, uh, practice that, but Jay, how about you? What, uh, what was your dinner table like growing up as a child? Very, very different than Carol. We did not have a dinner table. I grew up with a much younger brother, nine years younger than I was. So I was basically an only child for much of my growing up mother, stepfather. And for the most part, we didn't have a dinner table. I would eat dinner in front of the TV, a lot of takeout, a lot of fast food, my parents were great. Don't don't get me wrong. It wasn't uh, I wasn't a neglected child, but I guess I was neglected at the dinner table. And so uh, we also didn't grow up very little money. And so uh, in retrospect, I don't know how we ate so much fast food and and frozen dinners. But yeah, so so we didn't have a whole lot of family discussions around money or around entrepreneurship. Or both my dad uh, my dad was a salesperson. My stepfather had his own business. So you would have thought we would have talked a little bit more about entrepreneurship and, and money, but very few of those conversations. And so for the most part, uh, I was I was on my own there mm-hmm. and uh, I kind of forged my own path. I, I did the college thing and then did the corporate world thing. I worked in tech for a long time. And then when I met Carol, we, we basically decided together that uh, we were going to do this little entrepreneurial journey together mm-hmm. after we got married. So mm-hmm. that was that was. Not the first time I thought about it, but the first time I actually took action on it. Yeah. And now were you guys were you guys 
on that path already when you guys did get married? Did you already start the the company and already moving on that path or did that come after after marriage? It all really happened very quickly and it was all big one big ball of crazy for about <laughs> 6 or 8 or 9 months of our life. So, we were both working out in Silicon Valley doing tech. We often joke that the first several months of our relationship, he was traveling constantly I was traveling constantly. Our dates would be high-fiving each other in the airport and be like, oh, see you, that, see you in the next layover or whatever. And that would be about the extent of it. We knew that that was not sustainable. We knew we yeah. wanted to get married, have kids right away because we didn't meet until we were in our late 30s. Mm -hmm. And we knew that that was not a sustainable way to live for us if we wanted to actually be able to spend time with our kids. So, yeah, so we made the decision to leave our jobs. And frankly, we did not know what we wanted to do. We oh, knew wow. we wanted to do something entrepreneurial, yeah. but what that was eh, remained to be determined. Yeah. So, yeah, we just left. And then after I was watching a little too much HD, GTV, I'm like, oh, well, these people can flip a house. Now, meanwhile, Jay or I had never purchased any real estate ever. We had just, at that point, just purchased our very first personal residence. Okay. And neither of us had any construction background, anything like that. But we both knew that we knew how to build teams and build businesses from our role in corporate America. So we're like, eh, let's figure it out. We can make this happen. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, so talk about how you how you how you started that. How did you get your your first property? What was the what was the process? Did you you know talk about talk about how you financed that? Yeah. So we looked at properties for maybe six months, and and, we and were you just, focusing in on specific areas too? Was it? We were. We were. Uh, we were living just outside. We were living in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, and we were focused on a small town in Atlanta called, or outside of Atlanta, called Austell, Georgia. And we looked at maybe a hundred properties. And Carol is a lot more of a risk taker than I am. I'm, I'm pretty risk averse. And so I'd be the one running the numbers and I'd find something wrong with every property. Mm -hmm. And about a hundred properties in, not buying anything, not even putting any offers in, Carol said to me, okay, we can't do this anymore. Like whatever the next proper, property we look at is we're going to put in an offer. Mm -hmm. because we're just wasting time. You're too scared to actually do anything. We can't be scared. What's the worst that'll happen? We'll lose a little bit of money. Mm -hmm. The next property we looked at was actually three properties in one day. And I said, okay, which one are we going to offer? Uh, and Carol yeah. said, let's offer on all three. Love let's it. <laughs> and um, we got three properties under contract that day, yeah. and, or at least that weekend. And uh, so our first property was actually three properties which was good because had we only bought the first one, that flip did not go very well. And we probably wouldn't have done any, uh, any other ones, but, uh, but because we bought three, it kind of forced us to kind of jump in and figure it out. And by the time we were done those three, we did 10 more and then 20 more then 50 more. And mm -hmm. at this point we've done several hundred and we've kind of branched into multifamily and syndication and lending and mobile homes and rentals and notes and a little bit of everything over the last 12 years. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And getting back to that that first point, obviously, Carol, you were probably jumping up and down. You know, we, we finally got some properties. Were you, Jay, were you like, oh, shit, what are we going to do now? Like, how are we how are we going to pull this off? What, what oh, was your uh, thoughts there? I, I remember looking at that first property and thinking, well, how do I figure out what we're supposed to do with this? Mm -hmm. Like, how do we renovate it? Like, what do we fix? Who do we get to do it? How much should we be spending? Then what do we do with it? I, I honestly, I had no idea what I was doing and we were making it up mm -hmm. as we were going along. And, and 
So, how, so what was that process? How did you finally decide, Carol? I mean, you're an interior decorator. Did you just kind of jump in and start, you know, let's do this, let's let's do that, or what? What was that process like? How did you how did you figure out? So funny enough, I I did marketing communications all all kinds of non-real estate related stuff. I like to make other people's houses look pretty, but that wasn't uh, anything by trade. It was just because I've, you know, I felt like, heck, I can make do calligraphy. I can make your house yeah. look nice, whatever, <laughs> right? But again, I watched so much HGTV. How hard could this be? Yeah. So yeah, the process was literally like, okay, for some reason, I'm still not exactly sure why. I think we just had the intuition that we had to kind of get a sense who would ultimately be buying the property. Okay. And in retrospect, it's kind of funny to look at it from that perspective. We meet, so we have met over the years, so many people who are new to this business or so many people who are seasoned in the real estate investing business and flipping and doing rentals and so on. And so many people have been doing that for a while and don't necessarily take a minute to stop and consider who that end buyer is. Mm -hmm. I'm not specifically sure why we just intuitively knew that. I suspect it's just because of the roles that we had at our other jobs where you always had your end customer yeah. at in front and center. So I think we were able to really look at it through the lens of what would the end buyer want to want this product to look like. And then we went about the task of, well, okay, how do we make that happen for as inexpensively yet as quality filled as possible so that somebody would ultimately want to buy that product? Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. And, and so you started down this path Were you guys, the ones who were actually doing the renovations too, or did you hire somebody on right away? So uh, that's probably the the best thing about Carol and my backgrounds. We are both business people that were accustomed to running teams and accustomed to managing large groups. And that combined with the fact that we knew nothing about construction, we knew nothing mm -hmm. about renovation. It kind of forced us very early on to accept the fact that we weren't going to do the work ourselves, which was good because, and I've written a lot about this over the years, that that's not the highest and best use of your time as a real estate investor for the most mm -hmm. part. But not knowing that then it kind of forced us to, to bring in contractors, learn how the construction was done enough so that we could oversee the contractors and make sure that they were doing the right thing, but never get so bogged down in the details that we were spending time doing those, those jobs ourselves. So from day one, we basically, it, it was a, it was only a few months after we started that we hired our first project manager. And so, yeah, we, we never did any of the work ourselves, which I'm sure our, our, our end buyers were very happy about. <laughs> And, but it also, it forced us from the very beginning to start focusing and treating our business like a business mm -hmm. and structuring it like a business and scaling it like a business and not like a hobby or a lot of people that get into real estate just think of real estate as different than running a business and yeah. they're very hands-on. And for us, it was always, this is, this is a business just like any other. Yeah. Interesting. So you touched on something that I think is, is kind of interesting and, 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 you know, your backgrounds coming from more of a technology type background. How did you how did you approach basically managing running a, a construction project? I'm assuming you're probably going to pull in some of the 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 techniques and frameworks and all of that that you learned from the the construction side of things. Were you you know doing like the daily scrum type call or what what was the what was the process that you guys used and decided to to move forward with? And is it something you're still doing today? 
Yeah. So no, we did not go the agile route for, uh, for mm -hmm. our construction management, but we did, I, I had been accustomed to, to managing teams of, of a couple hundred people. And so I knew what it took to create a schedule and to manage to a schedule and to understand dependencies and, and to understand critical path. And um, I think the first couple projects, we actually, I did model them in Microsoft project. I, I had worked at Microsoft for a long time. So I was comfortable doing that. And then once I started to understand the process and I realized that it is a process mm -hmm. and you can create systems and you can create benchmarks and you can create metrics and KPIs and you can really put together a plan that can be reused over. Once I did that, I started creating some custom spreadsheets and, mm -hmm. and, and every project went a whole lot more smoothly. I'm a very metrics and data driven person. So for me, I always knew how long it took and what the dependencies were. So, so I was very big on, we never wanted to miss a day or lose a day because mm -hmm. a contractor wasn't there. We didn't want to lose an hour or two mm -hmm. hours. And so we would have schedules posted to the wall that were, were basically optimal schedules and, and our contractors knew what days they were supposed to be there. Our, our project manager knew when to, to get materials delivered. And it definitely took six or 12 months to get there. But every day I was focused on making everything a little bit more efficient and understanding dependencies, understanding how the weather and the seasons affected our schedules mm -hmm. and our budgets, understanding how different issues that might crop up were going to affect schedules and budgets. And so for me, that's always been kind of something I enjoy doing is, is just um, clearing out those roadblocks. There's a great book. Uh, it's called The Goal. And yeah, it's all about, uh, it, 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 it's, it's my favorite book out there that nobody's read. It's a bestseller. It was written in the 80s. And it's based on a management theory called the theory of constraints. Mm -hmm. And it's all about scientifically figuring out what is critical path roadblock in your business, the biggest critical path roadblock in your business today, clearing that and then moving on to the next to, to continually improve and optimize your business processes so that you're not losing time, you're not losing money and everything's flowing optimally. And so I was a big fan of that book and, and those processes to basically um, um, make us as efficient as possible. I love it. I'll have to check that one out. I've never heard of that one before. So yeah, that's a, that's a great, great tip and there. And I'd love to add too, along with making everything more efficient and building out those processes, like Jay and I talk about the fact that we have very complementary strengths. He's mm -hmm. really, really good at things that I'm horrendous at. And I happen to be pretty darn good at things that he doesn't do so well. So we've learned to kind of stay in our own lanes and be responsible for our own parts of the business. Mm -hmm. Well, back when I was doing my corporate thing, I had teams around the world as well. And a big part of my team's responsibility was to push out content push out marketing, push out and engaging materials that were that could go out quickly and easily and in, in an easy to understand manner for lots of different people. Part of that in being able to do it quickly, efficiently and effectively was learning that you did it once, you took tons and tons of time, way too much time up front to perfect it. And then it became a plug and play. You do the same thing over and over and over. So it became very consistent. 
Well, early on, right, it would have been very easy to fall into the trap of, again, I watched a whole lot of HGTV, and you know how it goes on those shows, right? It's very, it's always the same exact thing. The guys, the construction manager, the wife is like, oh, I'm going to pick out these pretty tiles, yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to pick out this lovely faucet, and then I'm going to put in this lighting. It would have been really, really, really easy to go down that road, but we very much approached it from a very different lens, and we recommend that anybody, whether you're doing real estate investing or any type of business, you work really hard up front to figure out a package, if you will, or a system that works. You, you spend so, so, so much time perfecting it up front. So in our case, for example, that was putting together a package of materials. And Jay had mentioned earlier, for example, how there would be schedules posted up on the walls so that all the contractors knew when things were to get done. Well, additionally, after about the second or, or second or third flip, we realized it does not make sense to reinvent and reinvent and spend time at Home Depot and pick out new lighting and pick out new flooring and whatever. We put together a materials package. And then it's funny when we do different presentations and stuff, uh, teaching people how to do this. Well, we have this one slide that's famous because we show 18 different kitchens on one slide. Yet, it looks like one kitchen because it's exactly the same cabinets. Mm. It's exactly the same faucets, exactly the same lighting, exactly the same everything. So we were able to really quickly realize that in order to grow and scale this business, and again, this will work for you whether you're doing flipping, whether you're doing investing or any other type of business, it's all about the consistency in repeating what's tried and true mm -hmm. and what works and not approaching every single situation as a brand new thing. Take what you've developed and replicate it over and over and over. That's yeah, that's great advice. Can't can't agree more. So you you mentioned some of the things like the the marketing types of things and all of that. What what types of marketing are you guys using in your flipping company right now? Are you are you looking for are you marketing for properties and marketing them for sale or what what types of what types of advertising or marketing are you doing today to uh, to drive awareness of of your companies? So we don't on on the sales side, we don't care much about creating a brand. Right now, it's about creating a great product and letting the product speak for itself. So right now, the way the market is, and that that's changed. Back in 2008, um, back when the market was very different, it was difficult to sell houses. We worked very hard to create a brand and we wanted our company was, was Lish Properties. And we wanted people to know that if you buy a Lish Properties house, you're getting the best property. Mm -hmm. And that was important because we worked with the same agents over and over. We worked with the same lenders over and over. We were finding a lot of off-market buyers. So they weren't buyers necessarily coming through agents on the MLS, but there were very few agents that were doing any volume. So it was important to us that we create a brand. Virtus Technology is a custom business software solution provider. Are you tired of manual entry into an old system that creates more work than it helps? Does your company suffer from constant pain and frustration around its business processes? Do you spend a lot of time and money trying to hunt information down or figure out what is happening in your business? Virtus Technology can help solve all of this. We evaluate your current processes and then create custom software or mobile apps to automate and streamline your business process, eliminating a lot of those pains and frustrations. Unlike other systems, our goal is to digitize your current processes and systems so that your staff's learning curve is very small. 
If you're ready to take your business operations to the next level, give Virtus Technology a call today. These days, things have changed. It can be difficult to buy houses, but selling is, is pretty easy. You throw them on the MLS and, and, and they're sold. And if you're priced right and the quality is there, you're sold in, in a day or two. So these days, it's less important about creating a brand. And it's just important to create a great product, to have a great service. So we're, we're very, Carol's our, our agent, our broker. And I mean, we're very careful about um, creating a great buying experience, a simple buying experience. We want everything to be easy. We like to control everything to make it easy for the buyer's agent and the buyer and to have a product that's great so that there's never any haggling or negotiation after the, uh, after the inspections because we want the repairs to, to basically stand for themselves and not have a big inspection report. So for us, it, it's less about brand these days and more just about quality and, and, and a great service. On the purchase side, we're buying a lot of our properties these days through wholesalers. Mm -hmm. So we've been fortunate because we have a, a decent personal brand recognition. People know that we buy a lot of houses and they know that we have a reputation for closing on schedule and we don't make it difficult. We have a lot of wholesalers that bring us deals. Mm -hmm. So that's that's been nice on the buy side these days. And, and how large of an area do you, do you currently invest in and, and flip in? So we have three areas. So we invest in uh, in and around uh, Baltimore County, Maryland. Okay. We are in a couple smaller cities in uh, in Georgia, south of Atlanta, and then we invest in Florida, basically about uh, 100 square miles uh, on the co the west coast of Florida. Got it. Yeah, that's that's what I was wondering. If you're focused in a one one area, if you are all over the place, can you talk a, a little bit about managing construction projects from you know? from a distance and in multiple locations and multiple, multiple construction projects in each one of those locations, I'm assuming going on all at the same time. How, how does that look? How does that work for you guys? Yeah. So there's no magic bullet. And for us, the, the key has always been, we have at least one trusted person, whether that be a partner, an employee, a real estate agent, or some other vendor, somebody that we trust uh, intimately on the ground in each of those locations uh, that can oversee the projects. Got and it. I know other people have other ways of doing it, but for us, if we can't, if we don't have somebody that, that we would hand a checkbook and a credit card to, if yeah. we don't trust them that much, uh, we're not going to do a project in that area. Got it. Got it. And, and Carol, how are you finding uh, the best ways to be able to sell these properties? Or do you have any, any techniques there? I mean, obviously you have your, you have your own brokerage. Are you just putting them on, on the MLS or any, any techniques to drive more awareness to each one of the properties? Fortunately, right now, based on the state of this in like whoever would have thought, right, this ridiculously hot real estate market that is completely nonsensical for so many different reasons. We won't go down that road, but that said, even though it is really easy to sell a house right now, we are still going above and beyond just like we did back in 2008 when it was really, really, really hard to find a buyer who could actually, you know, who could actually qualify to buy a house, much yeah. less want to buy one, right? So we're still using those processes. We are huge proponents of every single property, even in a market as hot as it is now, where you're going to have multiple offers if you're priced right. Every single one of them. We make sure, for example, we do things in our rehabs, like every single light bulb has to be a 5,000K daylight light bulb to light that place up. 
-hmm. Every single property needs to be staged. I own a staging company called Scott Silver Staging. It's an ancillary company that I do for other investors and homeowners, and it also just feeds well into our business. We insist that every single property we list is staged, even in a hot market. And a lot of people will say, is it really necessary? You're going to get multiple offers anyway? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, without a question, stage your property. And even if I did not own a staging company, I would say that because even if you're going to get multiple offers, I'll tell you what, with staging, people get such a greater emotional connection that they're going to mm -hmm. bid higher and they're going to bid higher and you're going to hold that property for a lot less time and make even more money off of it. So you get you brighten the place up, you stage it. We get massively, we go over the top with our photography and the 3D tours and the walkthrough. Again, even in a market that is this hot. Additionally, in addition to plopping it on the MLS, which is just, again, something that so many people just like to do because the market is so hot right now, I've always have had a list that just keeps building of all the agents that we're connected with and personally pick up the phone and call as many as I can possibly squeeze in in between my kids' homeschooling situation going on right now. So there's nothing wrong with that personal touch when you're marketing your properties. So yeah, all of those things together, even in a really hot market like right now, are going to help sell properties for top dollar in the lowest amount of time possible. And let's face it, if you get into those habits now, when the market does eventually, tur eventually turn and it's not so easy to sell property, then you're in that habit. You've got that system mm -hmm. down. You've got that process down and you can continue to come out on top. Back in 2008, you know, there were very similar thing you're seeing right now, 2005, six, seven, everybody on the planet was getting a real estate license, right? Yeah. Everyone, no big deal. 2008, 2009, they all just stopped that business. Guess what? We're seeing a lot of that same exact thing right now. Who knows how long this is all going to last, but the ones who will last are the people who realize that you need to just provide that exceptional service and that exceptional product. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Can you talk a little bit about strategies or tips that you would give someone who's looking to get into the flipping business and, and the, you know, the, uh, the home renovation flipping business? Yeah. So I would start with, um, if you're going to get into real estate investing at all, start networking early mm -hmm. because literally the best way to be successful in this business. And it's true of most businesses, it's relationships. Relationships are, are going to really define uh, your level of success and building those relationship or relationships early does everything from, it helps you fill your uh, acquisition pipeline. So when people mm -hmm. know that you're looking for properties, it gives you an opportunity to, 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 to find more properties. When you're looking for contractors, these are people that can help you find contractors when you have questions. So a lot of times we'll go into a new market and we won't know what areas are selling well, what areas aren't selling well it is our two bedroom or two bathroom houses selling as well as three bathroom houses. I mean, there's a lot of data on the MLS and that's great. You should be looking at that data, but I think talking to other investors is, is generally the best way to get an on the ground view of what's really going on in a neighborhood. And so building those relationships, not only will it be other people that can help coach you and teach you and mentor you and, and be there when, when you need something, but they can also answer those more tactical questions about what types of projects you should be doing, what areas you should be doing them in, what contractors you should be using. So first thing I would say is relationships are huge. 
next, there's a ton of information out there. So we're, we're affiliated with a, a, an online company or, or a company called biggerpockets.com, mm-hmm. which is the largest real estate investing network on the planet. There's a little over 2 million members, completely free. And they have books and they have forums and they have blogs and they have podcasts and basically enough content to, to keep you busy for the next 30 years. And so I, I highly recommend anybody, whether it's Bigger Pockets or anywhere else online, join Facebook groups and, and join local uh, real estate investor associations and meetups. But basically, there's there's plenty of material out there that you can learn. I, I like to say that, that flipping houses, it's not rocket science. Mm-hmm. And I know there are a lot of people out there that coach and teach and they'll charge you twenty or $50,000 to teach you how to, to flip houses. But the reality is there's nothing you can't learn by searching the internet for free and talking to other people that are doing it. Or I'd love if you pick up one of my books, but it's actually not necessary. Yeah. Buy my book. But, but if, <laughs> if you don't, if you don't want to spend the 25 fun. bucks, you don't need to, because honestly, all the information's out there and, and, and anybody can, can, can learn how to do it. Yeah, no, that's great. You, you touched on something a few minutes ago when you said, you know, you're going into a new area and you guys have obviously done this, you know, a few different times now. How do you go about picking a different area? Obviously, I, I understand like you want to talk to other people, you know, that are that are in that specific market. But when you guys are uh, approaching a new market, are there certain standout things that you guys are looking for or what? what how do you guys approach that? Sure. We're really, really very data heavy in our business. So if we have an area that we've been kind of, you know, just lo- just listening to people through the relationships we've built through our networks, that might seem like it's a good idea. Number one step, get licensed in that state. So make sure that you have your real estate license. We're huge proponents. There are lots of people who will tell you otherwise. Um, Our belief is that for a number of reasons, from the data perspective, number one as far, and the control, they're both really good reasons to get your license. It's not hard. A lot of states, you can do it online and so on. So what we'll do is we will analyze the data. We'll get, get a license. I have licenses in several different states. And then just start data crunching like crazy on the MLS. If you have a real estate license, you can absolutely go into the MLS. And and once you figure it out, in a matter of minutes, look at how many properties have been sitting versus how much has sold. You can quickly develop trends. You can look at what types of loans versus cash things are going for in those areas. So frankly, it's 100% about the data that you get access to when you get a real estate license. And so even if you, you know, a lot of people will think that realtors are a breed of their own and I don't have a realtor type personality. Even if you don't want to sell your own property, if for no other reason than to be able to really take a deep dive into the data to make really educated decisions, it mm-hmm. makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. And when, when you when you get your license, are you only can you only access data for that area? Or, or do you have access to pretty well anywhere? It depends. It's literally market by market. So okay. in yeah, in some states in Florida, for example, you have to activate with several different associations to get all of Florida. In a state like Georgia, however, if you're licensed anywhere in Georgia, you have MLS data for the entire state. So it depends market to market. 
Got it. Yeah. Got and, it. And, and some, some of the, and just to, to build on that, some of the data that I like to look at, certainly it's going to be different if you're flipping houses versus if you're doing buy and hold. And we do a bunch of buy and hold and syndications and apartments as well. And so it's different data that we're going to be looking at on the flip side or not the, well, when you're, when you're talking about flips, some of the data that I like to look at, one of the big ones is the price ratio between distressed and retail sales. So you want to okay. see a big ratio there. So if, if uh, distressed properties are selling it close to what retail sales are, if there's not a lot of margin there, you're not going to be able to fit in your rehab costs and your holding mm -hmm. costs and then your profit on top of that. So you want to see a big delta between uh, distressed and, and retail sales. And, and what is, what is that big big delta like what's a minimum is it 100 200 does it matter is it dependent on the area How so it's going to depend on the area it's also going to depend on the price point so certainly hundred thousand dollar houses you're going to want to see a different size delta than than five hundred thousand dollar houses mm -hmm. good rule of thumb don't quote me on this because it's going to change area to area it's going to change different parts of the economic cycle and and different types of properties but i tend to look for i want to see uh distressed property selling at at most 50 percent of what retail properties are selling for. okay so if i'm going to resell a property for three hundred thousand dollars uh, or if I'm going to focus on an area where the median house price for uh, a, a retail sale is 300,000, I want to see median house price for for uh, distressed sales at around 150,000. Doesn't mean I'm going to buy a $150,000 house that I can sell at 300,000. There are a whole lot more factors that that play into that. But when I'm looking at the the high level data, 50% distressed sales to to retail sales is kind of where I want to be. Next, I want to see if there are buyers in the area. Mm -hmm. These days, we don't have to worry about that too much, but certainly when the market's not as hot as it is now, back when we were investing in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, there were a lot of areas where there just weren't a lot of buyers. You go on the MLS and you're finding six, nine, 12, maybe 18 months of inventory, meaning that there are enough houses that at the current buy rate, it's going to take six or 12 or 18 months before all those houses are absorbed or bought. There are those areas. And so you don't want to be investing in an area where there aren't a lot of retail buyers. So typically what I say is take a look at whatever the median uh, inventory is across the country. Typically on average, it's about six months. So it would take six months for all the inventory to be absorbed into a particular market or bought in a particular market, given the, the pace of, of sales in that market. These days, it could be one or two months, but in general, it's about six months. Find out what the national average is. You want to pick a market that has a faster, uh, a less inventory than the national average. So if the national average is six months and you find an area where the amount of inventory is four months, that's probably a reasonable area to, to, to uh, buy flips from the perspective of are there enough buyers in the area? Also, you wanna look at supply. So that's the demand side. On the supply side, you wanna make sure that there's enough supply out there or there's not too much supply out there that you're gonna be lost in a sea of mm -hmm. other properties. Mm -hmm. If you're gonna list your house and there are gonna be a hundred other renovations that are in the same small area, there may not be enough of buyer pool to, to absorb all of that supply. So you wanna make sure that there's not too much supply. You wanna look and see if there's other investors in the area. So look on the MLS and see how many of those sales are cash sales, how many of those sales are to, are to LLCs that sound like they might be investors buying those properties. Ideally, you want to see at least some investors. If there are no investors in your area, that's a bad sign. You're, yeah. you're unlikely to find an area that nobody knows about. 
So if there are no investors in the area, it's probably a reasonable sign that there's not a great area to buy. And if there are too many investors, well, that might make it very difficult just from a competition standpoint, especially if some of those investors have been heavily entrenched in that area for a long period of time and are doing a lot of deals. So those are the big things that I like to look for. And then I also like to look at market indicators and trends. And this is both on the flip and, and the buy and hold side, um, certainly on the buy and hold side, but it also applies to flips. The three big things I look for in, when I'm looking for a buy and hold area are population growth, employment growth, and wage growth. So those are the three things that are ultimately going to drive market rents and occupancies in your area. If employment growth is going up, that's a good thing. Companies are hiring. They're going to pull in more people. Population growth, that might be immigration. That might just be you're living in an area where people want to, to migrate to. And wage growth, obviously, as people are getting paid more money, that allows them, that gives them more disposable income, and that allows them to qualify for higher and higher rents. Um, so that typically drives rents up. So population growth, employment growth, and wage growth. The fourth thing I always like to look for in any market that I'm doing in real estate is employment diversity. You don't typically want to buy in a market where there's one industry or one big company. The, the one exception I would make is military towns are great. Typically, that's pretty stable. But mm -hmm. don't buy in an area that's all based on, on, on employment by a large manufacturing plant. Or I grew up in Baltimore, and we had the steel mills. And when mm -hmm. the steel mills right. went away... Baltimore got crushed and yeah. has never recovered. This was 40, 50 years ago and still hasn't recovered. Yeah. So, so you want to see employment diversity and industry diversity. So just a general uh, idea That's of some great. of the things I look for. Love it. Love it. That is fire hose of information there to, to be able to digest. That's fantastic. So, so what would you guys say is next for you? What, what's, uh, what's next up? What, what are you guys working on? Go ahead, Jay. Yeah. There's so uh, many things. There's there so, are. so many uh, things, That's Matt. good. I love it. It's like, I love what's it. What's at the top? What's at the top this week? Yeah. So we're still buying flips. We're still buying single family rentals. We just closed on our first uh, apartment complex syndication a couple weeks ago. So uh, we're looking to pick up a couple more apartment complexes. And we have transitioned over the last eight months into uh, to buying some businesses. So we've bought a couple real estate adjacent businesses. We bought a firewater mold remediation company. Um, mm -hmm. We've looked at, or we're in the process of negotiating a plumbing company. We've looked at some roofing companies. So we're very much interested in kind of branching out from real estate into real estate adjacent businesses mm -hmm. where we can kind of leverage the, the network that we've created in real estate and uh, the knowledge we have in real estate and, and also do something different and, and new. Yeah, that's fantastic. And are you buying the businesses so that they can serve your properties as well? Yes. So the yeah. goal is kind of, it, it has multiple prongs there. One, it, it allows us to serve our own properties and our, mm -hmm. our, our own uses. It allows us to leverage the, the investor network that we already have. So there are other investors out there that are going to need these services. And so they already know us, they trust us. So it, it's not a hard sell to get them to use our services. And, and then it basically just allows us to create additional income streams. Yeah, no, makes perfect sense. Uh, if somebody wanted to learn more about you guys or, or what you're up to, what would be the best way to get in touch? Well, one place you can find us every week is we have a new show of the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast that is released oh, cool. every Tuesday morning. So you can Very go to cool. biggerpockets.com to subscribe to that or get it anywhere you get your podcast served up. Jay, what about you? So if you want to get in touch with me, uh, my website is jscott.com, letter j, scott.com. 
My email address is j at jscott.com. And if you want to learn more about flipping, um, Carol and I did um, a blog website for many years where we detailed in gory, gory detail down to the penny and including all of our mistakes and all of our learnings uh, on our first 50 flips. Couldn't, we didn't have the time to keep it up after that. But if you want to see our first 50 flips in gory detail, uh, there's a website called 123flip.com. Don't sell anything. It's completely free, but uh, it's there for anybody that's interested in learning more about flipping houses. Fantastic. No, this has been great. I certainly appreciate the time. And uh, I think that there's been a lot of good nuggets that you guys have provided here for the listeners. So so certainly appreciate that and wish you guys nothing but uh, but success in the future with all your flipping and other ventures. Congratulations. Thank you so much, Matt. It was Thanks, great Matt. chatting with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And remember, pass the secret sauce.